Choosing to stand for what you believe in is never an easy task. You're vulnerable, sometimes the work is thankless, and it requires you give so much of yourself. But my guest today, Martin Henson, has made the commitment to not only better himself, but his community. He's making an impact by creating a safe space that facilitates conversations geared towards anti-racism, uplifting marginalized communities, and ending white supremacy. You're listening to We Need to Talk. So you everyone and welcome to another episode of We Need to Talk. I'm your host Melinda. Today my guest is a community organizer and activist. He's a speaker and the executive director of the V Men organization. Martin Henson, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Of course, thank you. Now you're on the East Coast, correct? I am, I am. So what has the, the climate been like over there in terms of activism and getting your voice heard with a lot of the things that you're speaking out for? Well, I mean, it's been a, a really these past three years have been been kind of wild. So I, I imagine it's very different in that period of time than it has been before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's a lot of shift into kind of more digital spaces of advocacy uh, with the risk coming from COVID. Uh, there's a lot more care and concern relative to what you do outside versus what you, you don't do outside. So like some things such as uh, housing advocacy, like you've got to show up places to, to, to do the type of demonstrations to keep people from being evicted. It doesn't, parts yeah. of it won't always transfer to the digital side. Um, and I think people are trying to be creative and to really consolidate the reflections that they've had from the past few years on what we can continue to do and what we can't. And getting into activism in general is a really huge undertaking. And you, you're making a commitment when you do that to be a voice, to advocate for other people. So in your years of activism, though, especially in these last couple of years, have you ever felt like there is a form of activism that isn't as effective as others? But, and what have you found does work in terms of getting results and getting people to hear the messages that you're trying to lay out to the rest of the country? Yeah, there's a there's a lot of different types of activism that you can do relative to the issues that you're dealing with, and a lot and I feel like it depends on to a large degree what your objectives are, and I would say one of the, I guess this is a rose in the thorn, but the types of activism that have come out of the kind of post Ferguson landscape mm-hmm. tend to seek to like. Uh, to uplift like an individual or charismatic person, which we, which we were trying to get away from, but it, it felt yeah. like it kind of moved more into that. Um, and you can have pluses with that, right? So you don't have to right. be necessarily delegitimized uh, by not having a large uh, following or presence relative to the issues that you care about. So mm-hmm. a lot of the people who came out of Ferguson were just folks who showed up, who would kind of live near there, want to be involved, had connections, and they became known from what they were able to produce. Um, the flip side of that is that when you have issues that come up that might go viral, uh, incidents in the Black community, uh, it becomes seen as kind of a, a, a platform or a pedestal, like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm the person, I got the school, so you got to run through me. And I've seen yeah. that happen a few times. Yeah, with, with folks. I imagine. So, yeah, it's, it's, we, we really, we haven't quite figured out what, 
what we're going to do about how to do things ethically. We're, we're, we're working through that. So, yeah. It, it is it is difficult, especially when it comes to like companies speaking out or, you know, influencers speaking out. It's like, where do you draw the line between it being authentic or being just for clout? Right. You know, right. it's very, very difficult. It's a fine line because at the same time you want them to speak out, but you mm-hmm. do question what their motives are and what their reasoning. Is it actually because you're for the movement and for this issue or is it, you know, just because you think you have to? And that's something that's been very hard for me to kind of decipher when I'm seeing this. It's like, is this authentic or is it not, you know? Yeah, the, and it's, it's a critique of the capitalist system that we are forced to exist under. Uh, when you see there was no monetization of your platform in the way that it can happen now 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. So now you have you have kind of the activist influencer, like this hybrid thing that is that we're like, okay, well, well what's going on? And I and I think we've kind of leaned away from from seeing like what does this actually intangibly give to us as a community that you're mm-hmm. advocating for. Some things can be salacious and they sound really good as of the time. And you're like, yeah, but does this get us further along the line uh, towards our goals? And that's, I, I don't see enough questioning towards that because we, yes. we, we don't want to seem like we're not down, but I think there's less of that than there has been in the past. I agree. I agree. I think also one of the things that's difficult is that there are a lot of issues for people to be vocal about right. and people often feel like they have to pick and choose as well. Mm-hmm. And like, Oh, what am I going to talk about this week? What am I going to talk about this week? But for me, and this has been in my own personal quest of being kind of an activist educator. I feel like people can hold space for more than one marginalized group at a time. And I do think it's very possible. And for me, intersectionality is a huge part of just being a true activist. So for you personally, how have you managed to include intersectionality in your activism, but not spread yourself to too thin you know my my path with intersectionality has been uh difficult and and because i I think the ways that i was exposed to it was very much what do they call it um the oppression olympics which kind of yes yeah and and it's hard to to really hold that unless you really understand what you're doing so for example Looking back at Kimberly Crenshaw coining intersectionality is relative to an, uh, a phenomenon largely in the way that we describe things that are happening to people who are both Black and women. So when you expand that out into the more social sphere, the activist sphere, and for for one person, it may mean, hey, let's kind of look at the more deeper complexities of who people are. And for other people, it may mean that, hey, because this person is, let's say, Black, queer, trans, immigrant, they should have a higher position. And you're not really knowing what people mean when they say it is the more difficult thing uh, for me. Cause I came into it like, okay, I'm with it. And I even, you know, went out and talked and talked around it and, and, and some more stuff. Uh, I think when I think about intersectionality and what people are, when I think people are trying to say and do, um, I try to draw to the fact that even in the moments where we're not particularly distinctive to all the range of ways people can show up in a space, mm-hmm. it doesn't inherently mean that that space cannot cater to them. And so mm-hmm. I have to, because there's different ideological uh, yes. uh, works that people come from and intersectionality is largely an extension of the more recent gender theory 
or black queer feminism, I like that those type of lines. But yeah, um, you know, anti and decolonial frameworks have uh, operated from different lenses and have been able to to see people within all the spaces that they come to. Uh, with uh, say uh, Huey Newton uh, back in the sixties and seventies having a more expanded politic on homophobia than mm-hmm. we would think to attribute. Uh, if we're just looking at it just from identity wise, then yeah, you have to look a little bit deeper to see how they thought about it. So yeah, that, yeah. that's that the work that I early on in the work that I did with B Man, it definitely was a a point that I was really trying to grapple with. Like you know, so what does this mean if you know um, these these framings of black men being dangerous and violent? are just supposed with, you know, uh, let's say queer trans women and, and, and black the interaction between all of that. I, I really had to figure out like, well, well what am I going to actually do about this? It can be too wide to understand. So I'm like, all right, we can have uh, events where we come together with trans women of color and talk about stigma and, and ways that we both exist in the world and what that's like, you yeah. know? Yeah. So that that was my kind of that's what I came to in the in conclusion around what to do around these different topics. That were different. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, kind of following up with that with your organization that you created, I know that focusing on black men and giving them a safe space has been a big part of your activism and the work that you do. And you've really opened a lot of conversations surrounding hypermasculinity and vulnerability and intersectionality as well. But what in your personal journey made you want to create this space for black men to kind of explore what their identity is in society? A lot of things, really. I sigh because it's always, you know, it's trauma in a lot of ways and you just kind of adapt into it. You know, I uh, I had a lot of losses when I was younger. Lost mm-hmm. my, you know, I lost my dad, my dad was killed. Um, and I really had a lot of community around me of men and and losing men throughout my life and my time um, that I had come to know and love and understand more deeply. Um, I had to figure out a way to keep them around. Um, you know, just thankful for all of the people in my life and my world that that gave me the opportunity to to really be that and be influenced and be impacted. Um, shout out to to my mom and and you know all the women in life that that gave me those 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 values. Uh, and and that's really what made me be like, all right, all right, we we can't keep having this thing happen. And I also felt the burden of of actually showing what is actually happening to black men and attacking and addressing mm-hmm. the, the stigma as opposed to just saying this is wrong because people are just like, all right, well, <laughs> no, they go back okay. to the status quo. So um, B-Men <clears throat> really built around the need to be so like really evidence-based and really clear and articulate around what we're dealing with, how what we're doing is going to impact the larger community in, in ways that we can reduce harm and decrease stigma, uh, provide healthy communities uh, in ways that serve us really well. Yeah, I love that. And I love that you mentioned before how you have been trying to lay down a foundation for bridging the gap between black men and transgender women of color. And I think that those conversations are so important. Do you feel that you've been successful in bringing about a level of awareness and understanding and hopefully advocacy between those two communities? I have, you know, it's, 
you you realize after a while it's not really it's not really the two communities that have the most to say about it. It's it's everybody else. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and 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 within the, all of those opinions and and framings, there's the 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 violent kind of anti-black misandry that all black men are dangerous and the things that have kind of historically been pushed out there. Uh, and then you have the marginalization of um, queer trans women, I mean, or, or, or trans women of color rather. So I think I, I haven't, I didn't have the difficulties that I thought I would have. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find that it's almost as if people have a hard time understanding that black men will, would do this because they just see us in this particularly kind of hostile, aggressive way. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I was like, I actually don't have a problem with, you know, men in the way that you would think. I haven't had anybody, you know, uh, curse me out or say anything wild when I tell them what I'm doing. <laughs> if anything, the most negative response is just like disinterest, you know, but it, yeah, it, right. it's just like, or they might have, and more often than not, actually start having a conversation. They, and we talk, we go into the stigmas and isms and the things, and it, it, you know, it goes the way it goes. Uh, but yeah, it's it's been interesting. It seems like lack of education and exposure is more the reason for a lot of views, right? right? right. And it's not necessarily that you know these views are rooted in hate or vitriol in any way. It's just lack of education and awareness, and that's why I think having those conversations are so important. But even within the Black community, I know a lot of us are born into environments that have specific views and ways of thinking, and it varies within our community, but we are conditioned to think certain things. What views for you specifically were you conditioned with in your upbringing but changed over time? And in the conversations that you've been having specifically with Black men, what are some views that you've noticed are kind of um, the common denominator between all of them, but that the, your conversations are starting to change for them? Uh, consent, for me. Was, mm. um, I just think of consent as a, as a as in me acting upon someone else, primarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that when talking with men around what consent means that we don't really understand it well for ourselves. Interesting. Uh, so you, you like I, I, for people, for men to really move to a space of being able to better engage consent, you kind of have to know where your boundaries are and where they lie. And for guys who've never had to process that, you end up, you get stories of things that I don't even know if people are really ready to say, or if they even know what they're saying yet. Cause they haven't really dealt with it. They don't, they don't know what it means. So um, that's been one thing that's, that, that evolved over time. Um, as really my understanding of consent just became more expanded and mm-hmm. not just like consent is a thing for women. We need to make sure that they have, they give consent. It's like none of the, we all need to, to have consent and some of these things can be bi-directional as the whole. Yeah, and that's so interesting you bring that up. That actually wouldn't have even been on the list of, of things that I would have thought that you, you would say, but what, so I want to expand on this a little bit because this is really interesting to me. So when you talk about learning more about the definition of consent, what was your process like for that? Was it conversations with more women, conversations with more men? Like what was it like for you to kind of have that definition and understanding evolve? Yeah, it was it was a lot of conversations. Um with a lot of my, you know, female friends, I've always had, you know, a lot of like women friends in my life. And I think I learned 
when around the, I want to say me too was kind of ending around that time that I, Oh, okay. I'm not, I'm not asking enough questions. Mm. And they would tell me about ways that they adapt to men and, mm. and how, and what we, and I would talk about what we perceive it to be versus what they feel like what's actually happening. Um, that just kind of really opened the door for not just questions I'm asking them, but what questions am I asking myself and of other men. And so being able to build with other men, some who have been in men's groups um, uh, outside of just black men, just we're just talking and, and what does it mean for you to want to do this thing? And maybe you, you don't know enough about it. What does it mean for you to share when you're vulnerable around something? Um, what does it mean for you to say you don't know? You know, how many times does these non-consensual situations happen on behalf of men towards women specifically? Uh, where he should have just asked and didn't want to look like he, you know, was was stupid or his ego got in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that's that's just one lane of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I was, uh, yeah, as I was starting off, often, and I just I didn't know it would be as big of a thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I had to really figure out, like, oh, when do I feel like I can't say no? Um, right, it's right. one it's one thing to have an experience of, of something. And there's another thing to have an experience of something and never have it acknowledged. So if men don't even see their consent acknowledged, how do we understand it? And that's, you know, those are the types of things that we get into those spaces with mm-hmm. men and start digging into. What are your boundaries like? We talked about that last last Sunday, uh, last time we had to be men meeting. And we just went back and forth around how we deal with boundaries. And this, you know, this is beautiful stuff. Yeah, those are such important conversations. And I really do love that you've opened up the floor a safe space because there aren't enough safe spaces I feel where people feel that they can ask the right questions and not feel like they're stupid or ignorant or anything like that. It's just, these are, this is a safe place for you to ask whatever you need to, and we'll get through all of this together. So I love that space that you've opened up. So I want to shift gears a little bit. And when we're talking about, you know, white supremacy and white privilege and racist ideology, how much do you think that has impacted and influenced the issue of homophobia and transphobia within the black community? Do you think that has played a part? And what kind of conversations are you having surrounding that specifically? Uh, white supremacy frames how we think and deal with everything. Uh, and because we're still a colonized people. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, you know, still not free by way of the thirteenth mm-hmm. amendment. Um, and uh, and to even have dialogue in spaces relevant to them, where either they promote or um, we're in their publications, there's certain types of framings that that they tend to lean on and and uh, will pr- will push to a higher platform. So, for example, when we talk about homophobia and transphobia, anytime that we're and, and I'll answer this in a few different ways, but anytime that we mm-hmm. start moving towards uh, a collective or black understanding uh, of our position relative to white supremacy, our the contradictions that we have in community, they'll 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 push those higher. Mm-hmm. So, so you you hear more of like, well, what are you going to do about the rapists? What are you going to do more about the the, the homophobes? What are you going to do about the transphobes, the, the xenophobic folks? It, those are also parts of white supremacy to push them to the yeah. position where it feels like it's insurmountable and we have to discard each other in the same way they they discard us. So there's there's a level of that that's always happening that we that mm-hmm. are for us to, to know, you know, who's pandering and, and who's giving real critique. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
so as it relates to homophobia and transphobia in the community, I, I, I haven't heard people say this a lot. Um, I think it absolutely happens. And of course I have to say, it doesn't, doesn't happen to any particular larger degree uh, by way of skin color and race. Uh, the conditions that we exist in tend to exacerbate that. Uh, yes. Poverty, low education, yeah. socioeconomic status. We, we're more likely to give the, this racial, cultural origin as opposed to these conditions that we have to exist mm-hmm. under. They exacerbate uh, a lot of things, gender norms being one of them. Um, but when I talk to, pe- to people around it, I think they have a, a, when I talk to black people, black queer people around it, it's very different from when I talk to white queer, queer people about it. Oh, yes. It's yes, so fundamentally so. different. And I, and yeah. I, and I, because I used to, because the narratives that you hear are normally the ones of white people. And you're like, that is like, that talks about it in a way that I'm not familiar. But yeah. when I talk to people who are actually in community with about it, it, it makes it, you don't have this, this idea that it can't, we can't get through it. Because they've been living through it, so they can tell you what works, what's real, and what's not. Um, but I think black people really struggle with their understanding of it as a as a uh, an issue topic, like uh, mm-hmm. LGBTQ, they, like as a advocacy point. Um, and and I think sometimes we forget that those are real people in there, and it's not just something to like debate. So they were like, all right, well. Yeah. LGBTQ folks got this bill pushed through, where's Black folks' bill? You know what I'm saying? And they're like, and, and that's it, when you get into the oppression Olympics. <laughs> you get into that, and and some um, and and some understandings around how you know white people can push things to a place that we can't always get it to on our own, but that doesn't mean that there's necessarily uh, the same types of contradiction for us within community as it is when they're coming in from the outside making these statements. Mm-hmm. So people struggle with it. They, they absolutely do. Um, and But they don't struggle with it in the ways that we like to promote. And I think that that's, yeah. it's, it's never as, you get online and you think that you're going to have somebody like uh, chase you out of a building and throwing rocks at you if you start certain conversations. And it's, and it's like, it's never that bad, but it is bad. And yeah. for different people in community, their experience can be rough day in and day out. But I'm always trying to push people like, hey, actually, you can actually decrease the stigma by being in community openly with trans folks, such as the being bridging the gap stuff. Like that's one of those things that yeah. just by talking about it and destigmatizing it, you can get people to start thinking on a different level. And I can I can bring them the conversation and be like, hey, I heard X and Y. And not to mention that a lot of these trans women are already dealing with folks in the community. They're just not doing it out yes. loud. Like, you know, yeah. then because of all the reasons uh so we that's the contradiction i'm like that we should that i I tend to lean on i'm like this is already happening you think it's not happening but right it is you know yeah in both of these communities there is obviously a lot of trauma and pain that needs to be healed right moving forward and and i hope eventually there is um a camaraderie more so between the two communities that allows everybody to find a place of healing. But for you, when it comes to the black community specifically, what does healing look like? And when it comes to healing in this country in terms of race, what does that look like to you as well? Um, 
getting paid actually that's <laughs> how many of our problems come from from being low socioeconomic status yeah yeah uh we could have got them checks we could have got them checks sent out well i'll say canada got didn't they get COVID checks for like a year for a long time yeah yeah we're <laughs> I feel like we're one of the only countries that got ours cut off pretty quickly yeah um the the social economic uh status of black people is is dire and a lot of that okay. generational wealth that uh white folks were able to benefit from we were not able to get it took our yeah. hand uh and and a lot of times when we advocated for the right to vote they would kill us we still on the fringes in some some areas in terms of our right to vote and how they gerrymander districts to be able to shift the, the position of one party um, and in, in an advantageous way. So that is one thing that I will say, mm -hmm. we don't talk enough about that. Um, and, I, and I think some of these things, I tend to lean on data and, and stats because it, why, create ideological positions where you can just look at a statistical point. You, you know that mm -hmm. we are right here on this issue. We have this many people in jail. We have this many people who have to leave in, let's say, relative to Black men. Uh, um, we most, most of us died from COVID, uh, or Black men had one of the highest numbers of people who died from COVID. Um, you know, we, all, we know all of these points, right? Um, and how do we actually benefit folks. So I, I tend to, I changed my starting point. It used to be like, oh, we need more social services for black people. Um, and, but when the social services are determined by the state, um, sometimes the same things can happen. Uh, but people before were like, okay, we need more therapists, we need more counselors. Um, you know, you can't talk your way out of being sad for being broke. Like if, if that's the condition that black people are having to exist in, we're losing jobs, yeah. uh, not able to retain them at the same degree as people, our, our counterparts. Uh, you, there's only so much counseling you can do. And right. you know, I, right. I want a fundamentally different space uh, for Black people where we change the way that we deal with our concerns and, and process our emotions, whereas the, the B-Men Foundation's monthly space for Black men is a part of that, where I want to normalize us coming together and talking around about our problems and processing and building with each other and making each other our points of community and uh, uh, sources for that energy. It wasn't too long yeah. ago that um, there were uh, laws where we couldn't stay stand together congregated, mm -hmm. or we could get arrested. Gonna have too much money on you, or they'll take it. You know, you couldn't even be educated. You couldn't do nothing, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. I, I think that these kind of cultural interventions. Um, are really important for us moving closer towards our healing because I don't think uh, the well we know the system is not going to prioritize our needs like we will. So the elevating right. those things that we can do. I love everything that you're doing. I love the space that you've created, and I'm a huge advocate for conversation. I mean, my motto is everything begins with the conversation. You can't do anything without talking about it. So I love that you're leaning into that as well. And I really appreciate you taking the time to sit and chat with me today. Can you let everyone know where they can keep up with all of the good work that you're doing and learn more about the B-Men Foundation? Yeah, uh, check out bmenfoundation.org. All of our um, our socials are at, at B-Men on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, you want to check me out, you can look at uh, martinhspeaks.com. Uh, you see all the things that I've done. Uh, yeah, I'm just thankful for being a part of this. 
And to the listeners, thank you for your weekly support of We Need to Talk. Make sure you like, comment, share, review, and most importantly, subscribe. Thank you to Stephen James, our theme song writer and producer. And remember, everything begins with a conversation. We need to talk.